This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. Now this week saw us release our brand new clothing range. It's our spring range. And what we've done with this collection is we've tried to put together a bunch of garments that you can wear no matter what the weather. We've got a bunch of new t-shirts. These ones I really like. We've got a Berserker Spirit t-shirt and an Ulfadin Spirit t-shirt. And what these are is that they've got a warrior in the middle and then behind the warrior you've got the spirit of the animal that they're embodying. So behind the Berserker you've got a bear and behind the Ulfadin you've got a wolf. Um, alongside that, for those of you who like something a little bit more simple, we've got just a logo t-shirt. So it's our logo on the left-hand side and that comes in a heather neve and a woodland heather. And these t-shirts are 100% organic recycled cotton. Then we've got a new jogging pant which come in the men's and the women's and we've also got a hoodie. So these are all in black with our logo embroidered on them. Again, with the hoodie, we're trying to keep in that theme of keeping things sustainable. So that's made from 85% organic cotton and 15% uh, recycled polyester. And it's um, Global Organic Treaty certified and also Fair Weather Foundation certified. And finally, I think my favorite item from this launch is we've got a brand new 100% cotton jumper. Now, this jumper is absolutely perfect for me. You can wear it on its own or you can layer it up and have a t-shirt under it and throw that on top for that little bit of extra warmth. It's really comfortable, it's really soft. Like I said, it's 100% cotton. Uh, the men's one comes in black and a beautiful olive color. And then we do a women's one, which comes in a lovely navy color as well. So yeah, just pop over to the website and check them out. Don't forget, you get that extra 10% discount off anything store-wide for listening to the podcast and for supporting the podcast. Just use Horns10 at checkout and you can get 10% off anything. Thanks for listening. Let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Anonymous Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns of Odin. I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. So this time we're joined once again by Dr. Roderick Dale, um, who is, uh, well, we had him on talking about the Dane Law and all that stuff uh, some time ago, but now he's back in his other role as an uh, expert on berserkir or berserkers in uh, Nordic mythology and literature in general. So welcome to the floor. Hello there. <laughs> Thank and you thanks for, for having me back. Oh, <laughs> thanks you, for joining us. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this one. We kind of got into it a little bit at the end of the um, the last episode, and I've just been waiting for this one to come around. So you'll have a lot of questions for me then. Well, you know, we don't really prepare much, but I'm sure I'll think <laughs> of some as we go along. <laughs> for anybody listening, we don't prepare anything. We kind of wing the whole episode so <laughs> it's been working so far so why change it exactly it's a good formula before we start Matthias um oh, I hate to do this but me and a few people in discord have been talking and Whoa. obviously you you had your um your post about how Norse must die and yeah. how it's a bad thing and then I was looking at my bookshelf and I came across this yes <laughs> so anybody listening this is Norse Mythology for Kids by 
Matthias Nordvig PhD. <laughs> and he says, even at the bottom corner, he says, with Norse glossary as well. Yes. Uh, so, I mean, you've got to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So um, it, it, there's a very uh, <laughs> simple explanation for that. And that's Google. Um, so a little background stories of like those two books that I published last year. Basically what happened was that this uh, publishing company that publishes uh, popular books, various kinds, um, uh, contacted me and asked if I wanted to publish or write a book for them about Norse mythology for kids. And they had already defined the title and everything. I had nothing to say <laughs> about that. Um, and they said, we'll give you a bag of money, but you're not going to get any royalties from it. Um, and I figured to myself, well, fuck it. It would be fun. Um, I'd have so, done the same. <laughs> so I, I basically, yeah, I, I wrote that book in like two months and, um, and, and then they published it and it's sort of like, it's out of my hands now. I have nothing to do with it. Except <laughs> <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I didn't even notice it was somebody else that pointed it out, and I was like, "Ooh, I bought that book especially for this, just for that moment as well." I've been sat by the doorway of the Amazon man to bring it just so I could uh, out you for being a fraud. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, no. So, so uh, when it comes to the, the, so that little sticker on it, or or yellow patch that says uh, with Norse glossary, yeah. that's correct because the language that this stuff is written in is uh, uh, rightfully called Norse or Old Norse. Um, this is what I've been saying all along. Um, I'm not so, saying we should get rid of the term itself. I, what I'm saying is that we should use it correctly. So it's just um, the book title that's wrong. Technically, <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, Rorik. Rorik, what, what uh, do you? What are your thoughts on this? You, you must have seen me rant about this in some context. Oh, I read that rant. Um, I've got two thoughts, and they're both contradictory. Yes, absolutely correct on the Norse language bit. But secondly, modern usage is not historical usage, um, just like the way we use Viking these days as an ethnic uh, denominator too often. How are you going to stop people doing this? <laughs> especially if you want to sell books. <laughs> yeah, especially yeah. if you want to sell books. No, so... It I mean, uh, you definitely have a point there, um, but I feel like what what you're actually uh, what you what you're aiming at in in saying this is is more that well we're so f so deep into that rapid hole right now that it's hard to turn around and come back out. <laughs> oh, there's um, no way. And you're probably right. Uh, it is like something as 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 a south southeastern Scandinavian Nordic person. I'm going to be flying that flag real high because I'm so sick of being associated with Norse ethnically all the time. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I totally get your point with it. And I do agree very much. But I do wonder how you turn around in that rabbit hole, as you say. Yeah. I mean, it, it might be a lost cause, but I figured, if nothing else, I should, I should put it out there. And then we'll <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> yeah. No, I... Uh... I agree with you. <laughs> so, 
I've been waiting 60, 60 plus episodes to get you on something. So I'm taking my opportunity when it comes. <laughs> so let's uh yeah, let's jump into the the main show. I've got my Ulf Hudding t-shirt on the ready for the ready for the show. Available now, Hornsbowden.com. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, let's jump into it. I know last time we I think we should probably just start again with the whole the whole topic. Um so yeah, let Roy, do you want to start from the, the top and tell us at least maybe in your in your opinion what the Berserk and Ulfidin are? Oh God, from the top. Jesus. Right, let's start with modern ideas. We've got we've got a few we've you know we've got as long as we need. <laughs> That's just as well, really. I can talk about this one all night and through the next day. I mean, basically, if you see a berserker, a berserker, sorry, I'll use the modern English for that. I try to differentiate because I argue that a medieval idea of a berserker and a Viking Age berserker are not the same as a modern berserker. If you see the word berserker kicking around, everybody knows what it means. They're related to berserk. Mm-hmm. Um now, I think it was Robert Lowe in one of his Viking books described as a berserker as a troll on wheels. So uh, basically going absolutely mad. There's mm-hmm. a Viking book from the 70s, which I'm busy trying to forget that I ever read it, uh, has a berserker completely losing it on the Viking ship and attacking an iceberg that's heading towards them. Okay. <laughs> and that was the last they ever saw of him. Mm-hmm. And then think, there's a, there's also that movie. What is it called again? Like, why am I blanking on the movie? Um, it's uh, it's it's Jay and Silent Bob, and one of them, their cousin uh, from Ukraine, is like plays like some death metal something, and the Clark. That's <laughs> yes, in Clark. Clark's it's the Berserker song in Clark. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's also yeah. that. There's also that. The one that sticks out for me. I think the or the, the one that I always see memes of is the gentleman on the bridge at Stamford Bridge who apparently fought off the entire army. I see him sometimes referred to as a berserker. All too often, and yet it's not even from a Norse source, so you don't see the word berserker included in the description. Mm-hmm. No. And it's a later description of the battle at Stamford Bridge. Yeah. So... You know, and then depending how you define a Berserk, he may or may not have been one Mm -hmm. because Mm. all too often there's a pre-Christian connection uh, and I would love to go into that in more depth in a little bit. Um, But the idea that he was a Berserk, if Berserkir were warriors of Odin, uh, in the army of Harald Hardrada, Harald der Hardrothe, um, who was a Christian king, mm-hmm. it kind of, the contradictions pile up. Mm. Uh, so you, I always say that guy wasn't a berserk. And then when I actually get round to finally creating a model for the Viking Age, Actually, he might have been, but not in the way that all of you are thinking. (laughs) Sounds complicated. Oh, it gets very complicated. My brain is a mess from this stuff. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing we're not going to get a definitive answer there. 
I will give you my definitive answer. Okay, that that sounds so, as good as we're going to get. Yeah, yeah, based on the evidence that we have. I mean, basically, everybody thinks berserkers go berserk, gnash on their shields, they howl, they foam at the mouth, mm-hmm. they lose it in battle. If you've ever played any war game that covers Viking armies, they will always have a berserker figure who just loses it and goes. I think that's just any kind of game that has warriors in it that maybe cross any time period. The berserker is always the one that kind of gets picked up and and popped in there as like this ultimate warrior. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I was playing Guild Wars two earlier and killing off berserker centaurs. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> that sounds uh, a bit different. Mix in your mythologies, almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. But yeah, that's where it is. That's what we understand by it. That's what the word has come to mean now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got interested in why we think about that because basically I'm a massive nerd who's played all these games. And when I was 14 and I was playing the Berserker character class from one of the early White Dwarf magazines uh, <laughs> in our D&D campaign... You know, I was like, yeah, it's all raw and all the rest of it. The problem with that is that all of that comes from research into Berserkskanger, which what which most people will translate as either going berserk or berserker fury, um, and which I refuse to translate as that <laughs> for reasons. But since the 17th century, as we touched on before. Everybody's focused on that. And the question Mm -hmm. is always, how did they go berserk? Nobody's ever actually thought to ask, did they go berserk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So 1644, Stefan Stefanius decides he publishes a piece based on stuff that he'd been doing 20 years earlier, saying, ah, right. So we've got this connection between these guys who are completely mad because they chew on their shields and howl, uh, and the god Odin coming out of Asia, but he wasn't really a god, uh, because Snorri said that he was a man who was a great wizard, black magician type, who everybody thought was a god. So the black magician is getting these guys possessed by demons, and this is why they act the way they do. Uh, so... That's really where it starts in the 17th mm-hmm. century. And it all starts with nation building, building up concepts of who are we in Scandinavia? Who are we in Denmark, Norway, Iceland, Sweden? And people looking to the past and going, this is our national literature. We don't care that it was written in Iceland. This is mm-hmm. about us. But this bit doesn't belong with our proper God-fearing Christian tradition. Isn't it? Isn't it Thomas Bartholin who uh, who goes down that route with like uh, the Odinic warriors and and Berserker and all of that stuff and like that that was the original Danish fierceness and that's why we need to go kick some Swedish ass or something like that. Yeah, I mean, basically, you've got Bartholin, you've got Olaf Celsius, uh, you've got Stefan Stefanius, you've got all these guys, seventeenth century, early eighteenth uh, century. And they're basically interpreting the past on the basis of what they understood mm. of their own, on the basis of the ideas of their own times. So they interpreted 
what was going on within a Christian framework, and they applied the same solutions to Besarkir as they did to pretty much any other ecstatic phenomenon that they encountered. Mm-hmm. And it's only with the advent of the age of reason that people step away from the religion and start looking for other solutions. So with that, you've got, um, there's a Norwegian priest, Hans Jakob Villa, who was obviously very, uh, optat. What's the English word for it? Preoccupied. Preoccupied. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm working in two languages here and it's not working. <laughs> I, I, I know how it goes. <laughs> Don't worry. I have, I have no idea yeah. how that feels. <laughs> I am non-functional in English and Norwegian at the moment. Completely exactly. non-functional in both. <laughs> uh, but he was obviously massively preoccupied with his parishioners' relationship to alcohol. So he started suggesting that actually these berserkers, they'd just drunk too much and they had a massive hangover. Uh, <laughs> so they were grumpy because of that. And that's in the middle of the 18th century. Mm-hmm. And then the first one who actually does write it down about mushrooms, Samuel Erdman, a Swedish theologian, looks to Siberian shamanistic practices and says, ah, Ammonita muscaria, fly agaric mushrooms, mm-hmm. which may be based on a story told by von Stangenberg, who was a prisoner of the Russians um, during the Great Northern War and shortly after, who told of his time on the Kamchatka Peninsula, where people would save up all year round to buy these fly agaric mushrooms and make tea from them and then drink them and get utterly pissed. Uh, and what's interesting in his story is that the poor people who couldn't afford these mushrooms would wait outside by the toilets with bowls to collect the urine of the people, of the uh, richer people. And they would drink that thinking that was going to get them pissed. Like there was mm. something left over in the <sighs> tea. <sighs> Absolutely nothing to do with ritual. This is a party in Kamchatka. Mm-hmm. Pretty far away from Scandinavia. There's like a Siberian expanse in between those two. <laughs> Well, exactly, exactly. And they're, they're interpreting these things by analogy with um, basically what they know. And the only difference between the 17th century and the 18th century is the idea that suddenly we're all enlightened. We, this is the age of reason. We are applying logic and everything else to it. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you think just what what's cool sticks around as well? Because... The idea of, you know, this this guy who wears a bear skin, feels like he's becoming a bear, takes a bunch of mushrooms and is fearless and not hurt by fire and iron. That's a really cool idea. That's the reason why it sticks around in games and movies and everything else. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, rule of cool all the way. Yeah. It doesn't stand up when you actually start looking at the medieval evidence. Oh, who cares about that? (laughs) <laughs> well this is the problem isn't it <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely exactly. really cool all the way through everybody who has looked at this stuff has looked at it within the framework of their time mm-hmm. so you've got Hans Jakob Villa in the mid 18th century you've got Faye suggesting epilepsy in the late 19th century basically you start looking to medical solutions and then shell shock after the first world war 
You've course. got psychological solutions when Jung and Freud are doing all their stuff in Vienna. Uh, then you get to looking at the Vietnam War and there's Jonathan Shea saying, hey, these guys in uh, Vietnam, they went berserk. They threw their armor off and charged at the enemy, mm -hmm. heedless of all danger and everything. And there's some seriously disturbing stuff in his book in Achilles in Vietnam about what these guys did. Mm -hmm. uh, they absolutely went berserk, but that doesn't make them Pesachias. Mm -hmm. um, no. But he's interpreting it that way. Then Howard Fabing, late 50s, 1956. Now, what were people obsessed with during that period? Suddenly we get the magic mushroom theory cropping up again. Okay. Mm. So, of course. You know. And then Jenny Wade suggests the warrior shamans of Odin in 2016. You've got military historians suggesting it's a PTSD reaction. Uh, you've got the suggestion that there's a genetic anomaly in the Scandinavian population in this period and that that's what caused it. I feel like PTSD is the most married. Is it could be something to it? it or not i know you pulled that face then but i, I think we spoke about it before that surely people would still have suffered from that in some way but maybe not in in terms of berserker but but surely you know we at the end of the day i don't think we're made for for war in the way that especially not in the brutal way it used to be with swords and axes and and very close and personal and i don't think the movies ever do justice for what it would really have been like to see somebody hacked to pieces in front of you. So I imagine PTSD will definitely have been a real thing. I'm sure it was, but I'm also going to argue that that doesn't necessarily make somebody a berserk. There are episodes oh, no. in the sagas where, for example, Thorolver, Scotland Vimson, Ailes brother, he throws his shield behind him and he charges into the fray. And the word that's used to describe him is author which mm. is basically mad. Where mm -hmm. It's where you get the name Odin from. Um, and he charges into the fray and he strikes out on the left and on the right. And it's a bit of a trope in the sagas, but he does that. And it sound, that, that sounds like a description of somebody losing it in a desperate situation and going berserk. And you get the same in Harald's saga, where Harald Hardrada at Stamford Bridge does exactly the same thing actually almost word for word for that matter in the, in the actual text. Uh, so I'm absolutely sure that there were people who had massive psychological problems after fighting battles um, and that they will have had some kind of PTSD and mm -hmm. they will have had the kind of negative reactions that Jonathan Shea records uh, where 40% of the veterans that he tended as a psychologist who had gone berserk in battle would respond massively excessively aggressively to any kind of setback or confrontation way beyond what was expect what you would expect of a normal human being under normal circumstances mm -hmm. so there is absolutely every reason why i mean that's the reason why somebody like Frederick the Great wanted all the farm lads on who were used to slaughtering their own animals because they were used to wading in blood and guts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, know? I think I think it's it's fair to say that even just 
mental health in gen in general. I don't know, Matthias, whether you know of anything in the in the sagas or anything like that. They, they point out to somebody being sort of quote unquote mentally ill, but I'm sure it would it will have existed. It's not something that's just maybe it's getting worse in modern times due to the way we live and and being less sort of communal, but surely it will have existed to a degree in that time. Oh yeah, there there are definitely um, uh, references to 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 things that can be um, identified as 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 mental health issues in different ways in the saga literature. The again, Eil saga is a great example with the famous case of Kveldulver, his grandfather, who like gets like mad and weird in the in the evening and. Um, you know, of course, it has like it, it has a literary function in the story. It's part of explaining why a Scott Clarkson himself is a bit, a bit of a psycho, but but I mean, you know, it's 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 the type of phenomenon that you could easily associate with, you know, um, some bipolar disorder or mm-hmm. or, or or other uh, such ideas um, or, or or illnesses. Um, there's a Somebody, um, there's some, there's a guy in, I think it's in Mexico City, actually, who's been researching madness in the saga literature. Yeah, so so there's there are some people who are working on it uh, out there, and maybe uh, uh, Rorik, you uh, you remember who they are? No, I don't remember who that is particularly, um, and I will actually suggest a caveat with the saga literature: it doesn't provide enough information to tell us what's going on, to do any kind of retrospective diagnosis. Yeah. We can know that there is something going on, but mm-hmm. we don't have enough information to be able to say this is this disease or this mm-hmm. is that. Mm-hmm. The other times that we can be sure that there's some kind of diagnosis is where, for example, you find reference to Brotfak in the text, which is mm-hmm. epilep- an epileptic fit mm-hmm. uh, and it's defined as that in the Norse laws um, so beyond that I'm always I'm very wary of any kind of retro DX for that kind of thing oh yeah absolutely but I mean we, we, we could sort so of like say broadly well the, this seems like it's a phenomenon that that is that is sort of like derived from experiences of these kinds yeah. right and that's absolutely. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You can definitely say there is something weird going on with Kveldulver mm-hmm. and that he's clearly got problems of some description. Yeah. Um, but. Yeah, no, trying to pin. I, I, was it Jesse Bayek who, who uh, claimed at one point that Aid Scottlegrimson himself had like Badges disease or something like that? Yeah, it's yeah that like, was Jesse Bayek. Yeah, that's like a little too far, my friend. It's <laughs> like. <laughs> I mean, that's mostly based on uh, the medieval digging up of Ail's skull and hitting it with an axe. Right, yes. Really thick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I feel like that'd be my skull. <laughs> just a good two inch thick with just this little squidgy yeah. bit in the middle. <laughs> but I tell you what, I feel like that some days myself. <laughs> Me too. So, so back to the berserker. Um, before you tell us exactly what you think and um, what about the idea of berserker meaning like bare skin as in as in naked rather than putting a like a bare skin on 
absolutely not naked. Never know. <sighs> That's so, the one I was hoping for. Snorri Sturluson interpreted bear sesker as meaning bear shirt, i.e. not wearing armor. And he said, and mm-hmm. we get the description where it says that um, they wore uh, wolf skins for armor, I think, of the Ulfethnar. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't actually mean that they stripped off naked and fought naked, unfortunately, if that's what you're into. Sorry. Um, that would be terrifying. Though. The etymology <laughs> just suggests that there is nothing over the shirt, and the idea that they were naked very much comes from Tacitus, who was writing 800 years before that um, mm-hmm. about other Germanic tribes whom he had never seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's uh, also that's also a trope of of Roman literature about like Northwestern peoples in in Europe in general. They say the same thing about the Gauls and so on, right? So we can't even really know if it's historically correct. Well, that's it. I mean. He's got all these descriptions and everything, but it's all about sort of how healthy and strong the barbarians are and how the Romans need to man up. And that's Mm. basically very much what his Germania is about. That kind of sort of, it's almost an Orientalist narrative about the barbarian tribes outside uh, the Roman Empire, Mm -hmm. if I can put it that way. Yeah, yeah, a Nordicist, Nordicist, yeah. Um, I I feel like the there's like been a Nordic version of Orientalism circulating, um, uh, and and I think it has been called Nordicist or something like that. Right. Um, and this also makes a lot of sense in the type of literature that he's writing and what he's talking about and his whole situation, right? Because you know, uh, there's nothing more heroic. Than killing off a bunch of like very strong and fierce barbarian warriors from the other side of the Rhineland, right? especially so. if you uh, multiply the number of them that you killed by a hundred in the text. Yeah, I mean you <laughs> would though, wouldn't you? Hey, it's propaganda. Yeah, exactly. You know, like you know, you always print the legend. Exactly, for sure. So, so yeah, so not naked. Okay, not naked, sorry. So that one, that one's out. Possibly wearing an animal skin over their shirt or not wearing armor. Okay. Um, the idea that the bear actually comes from a reconstructed word for a bear, so thus wearing a bear skin, mm-hmm. uh, that arose around 1864. Um, could be right. There is a word for a female bear, bearer. So there could be an earlier word that's lost, berry or bear, uh, and that was in use before there was um, breaking of vowels and things so that bearan became bjorn. Mm-hmm. So that could have happened. That would make that for that to happen, uh, berserkers would have to have been a thing in Scandinavia before the Viking Age, quite early. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm all over. I love that idea. I also think that both meanings could actually be true at the same time if by bear you mean not wearing armor, so not wearing a coat of mail. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so they could have don't, been wearing that. Don't we also get that idea reinforced by this uh, curious story about um, uh, Ragnar Lothbrok? Uh, Doing his ah, Ragnar thing. shitty pants. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
as the recent theory about where he got his nickname from. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. Sorry, I just have to that one up. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I I'd forgotten about that one. <laughs> yeah. What uh, what's the recent theory? Let's let's break some hearts whilst we're here. Ragnar Lothbrok was meant to have worn hairy trousers covered in tar. Mm-hmm. It has okay, been suggested yeah. that actually it wasn't tar and that it was a direct result of him catching dysentery at the Siege of Paris. <laughs> okay. <For fuck's> sake. <laughs> <laughs> By a serious scholar, I will add. I mean... <laughs> Is that just the case of someone just wanting to come up with something new? Or is that like, is there any way that could be real? I don't know. I don't know. I don't care, to be honest. I love <laughs> okay, so the I, theory is out there. Rule of so tool. I, I just want to say, say let's make that one this. stick. I do think that this field of like old Norse literature studies in general is perhaps a little uh, too. Um, enveloped in 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 like you know attempts at coming up with like uh yeah new new random ass theories to be honest sometimes like there's a little too much of that and i i feel like we philologists are probably the worst at it when it comes down to it like we're, we're the ones who come up with all kinds of stupid shit all the time and it's like you know it i i wonder if it's an attempt to stay relevant mm-hmm. or, <laughs> or if it's just you know because you're like you're just so creative with the literature or like it's probably a little bit of both i mean uh, it makes sense that if you are a scholar you would want to come up with a origi- an original idea because it's quite it's it's nice i suppose to be like yeah this is my idea this is what it means so there must be something to that as well like everybody wants to have that that moment even if it is shitty pants <laughs> yeah there is that there is that um, so let's get back, I go to, back to talking about Vikings in uh, wolfskins and bearskins. <laughs> yeah, let's 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 do right. That. Um, so, going back to the idea of bearskins and wolfskins, we do have, as Reuben will have said, artifacts that depict what appear to be warriors wearing wolfskins. Tuschland mm-hmm. a helmet plate, for example. You've got a figure in a wolfskin following a figure with what appears to be a horned helmet, but with bird's head terminals and mm-hmm. where one of the eyes has been removed at some point from that figure. So it's thought it might be whatever the Viking Age version of Odin was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get those images. Actually, you can find them in England, in Germany, Sweden, uh, probably Danish and Norwegian examples that escape my mind at the moment. But basically throughout what you might call the sort of Germanic and Scandinavian speaking areas. Mm-hmm. So it's not that far fetched that people would have worn these animal pelts. The question is, did they wear them in battle or did they wear them for perform- ritual performances? Because you don't have the depictions of them actually in battle. Mm-hmm. Uh, the depictions are usually either individual or in small groups. It doesn't look like a battle line. Mm. Okay. So would, so that, would there be any benefit 
to wearing it in battle? Because I imagine it'd be quite heavy and furry, maybe get in the way, especially if you had the head on there still. <laughs> well, like, yeah, would they? argued that nobody would have worn a bear skin because it's too bloody heavy and you'd have basically died of heat exhaustion before you actually got to the battle. That's, um, that's it. I mean, uh, we all want to look cool, but I, I don't know about looking cool when I'm going to fight someone. Yeah. I feel like I'd maybe, maybe wear it to the battle. But then it's like when you wear a nice coat to a party, you take it off when you get there. And also, yeah. let's just like keep in mind that all those uh, guys in, in the Vikings show, what they're wearing is, is sheep, uh, even though they, they look very bear cool or bear chic even. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's it. Um, so would you wear something that big and heavy and untailored into battle? Probably not. No. Would you have worn a bearskin into battle as a jerkin? I mean, Thorir Hunder, Thorir the uh, Hound, is supposed to have had 12 men with him at the Battle of Stiklestad in Trondelag in Norway at, in 1030. Mm-hmm. And they had magical reindeer coats on, <laughs> or wolfskins, depending upon which of the histories you read. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. So, and it actually says that he couldn't be wounded where the um, coat was and that basically when they hit it with their swords, the dust bounced off. I mean, bears do have thick skin. Mm-hmm. So if you're wearing an animal, a thick animal hide like that, the sword might not get through it. Uh, okay. And we do get episodes in the sagas where they go, oh, the sword won't cut him. Right, let's beat him to death with whatever clubs we've got to hand. <laughs> And he gets beaten to death. And if you're wearing something flexible that won't stop blunt trauma but will stop cutting, mm. you know. Yeah. And... So would a how valuable would a bear skin or a wolf skin be? Would is it I mean, is in is it something that if you obtain it either by killing the bear or buying it, would you risk ruining it by taking it to battle? Or is it something that you would keep for for special occasions? I think that depends who you are, but given that status and performance was important in this period, you would wear your best gear. Mm-hmm. Um, you would want to look good because if you're coming home on your shield, okay. you want people to go, yeah, that guy, he rocked that look. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Instead so, of he shit his pants. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so I think that people... Uh, a lot of people almost certainly would not have wanted to preserve their best possessions. I mean, when you read about gift giving, giving things away, it's the relationships that you're building by the gift. The gift itself is actually not as important. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the same token, if you're wearing your good stuff because you want to impress people, You've got to dress for the role that you're meant to be performing. And if okay. you're meant to be a top warrior, then you've got to look the part. And if that means like an arm full of gold arm rings, if that's what you've managed to get hold of and wearing a bear skin, then that's going to be your look. Mm. <laughs> I, you know? I, I, I think I'd go for practicality though. Make I'd, it. Yeah, yeah I'd, fancy, <laughs> I'd, I'd fancy surviving rather than being all flash. Uh, you know, it, it can be both practical and functional. I mean, they mm-hmm. weren't stupid. They could have tailored these animal skins as well. You might have mm-hmm. the animal head. I mean, 
this is getting really speculative because mm-hmm. we have no evidence for this. But the fact is that we know that if you were wearing a wolf's head into battle or a bear's head into battle, you could have had that tailored. You could have removed the heavy stuff. You could be wearing it over a helmet. Um, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways this could be done. And the problem is that we don't have the evidence. Mm. Okay. Uh, I, and I'm just I, going to throw one more thing at you quickly. In the Hagia Sophia in Kiev, there is a fresco on the wall called The Dance of the Geysers. And it's a fight between a bare-chested bloke with sword and shield and what appears to be a person in a kind of weird, vaguely bear-shaped mask. And mm-hmm. you get the same on Kelvu BG56, which is a runestone in Sweden. You get a very similar looking image with the same kind of snouty face. And they don't half look an awful lot like these felt masks that were found in the harbour at Edebu. So maybe it's not an actual bear pelt. Maybe it's a bear mask for whatever's going on. Uh-huh. Again, it's speculative because we mm-hmm. have the evidence. We have these finds. How do we join the dots between them? It would certainly be terrifying to be looking across at somebody wearing, like you say, if they're taking the heavy stuff off and they could bear the top of the head on the helmet and the skin. And it would be, it would certainly be a scary thing. And, and I guess if you can relay war back to sports in a way, the posturing and putting fear in the opponent before you even get the game started is often a bi- as big a factor as anything else. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, like the All Blacks doing a hooker before a match. They get there, they exactly. do that. I mean, Jesus, I get goosebumps watching that every single time. Imagine it's terrifying. the person who's actually facing it. But it's, a, it's not just terrifying, it also has social and cultural significance. Mm-hmm. And if your berserker guys are performing like that, they may take the uh, bear skins off before actually joining the fight, but then, you know, they form up and they do whatever kind of socially and culturally significant ritual that, uh, and I'm going to get speculative again here, but, you know, maybe dedicates the enemy to Odin and mm-hmm. tries to get the god of the, that will give them victory in battle on their side. Mm-hmm. I mean, Whatever the actual religious intention is, you know, it's going to be scary looking. Guys mm-hmm. howling behind their shields, you know, all the rest of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so let's, if we just get a little more speculative. So, so we know from the Thuler, um, these lists, right, of uh, like uh, Haiti um, in particular, um, that, that Thor is also called both Atli. And yeah, um, I mean, as as a, a particular sort of like warrior associated god, at least in 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 you know, if nothing else, demeanor that we're seeing in the literature, um, that could then be something to it that that uh, a figure like Thor uh, as a warrior god um, in those particular contexts would, uh, would would have a function there or. What are your speculations on that? Um, oh, I don't think there's anything in Old Norse literature that would actually connect them to Thor. 
which is the, which is our problem. Mm -hmm. um, the connection is drawn by Snoddy to Odin. Mm -hmm. And it kind of feels right in many ways because Thor feels more god of the common man protecting humanity from the evil forces. Mm. Odin is more god of the social elite. And mm. I have argued repeatedly that Berserkir were part of the social elite. Mm. So that's who they might be. Uh, but it's the question then is, I mean, Snorri's Odin is absolutely not the Odin of the Viking Age. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what, how, how did that god present themselves? How many different regional variations do we get? Because what we have is a homogenized narrative from which we've built up what we know. Mm -hmm. But the tradition in Sweden might have been different from the tradition in Norway, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and you could wind up with a bunch of different traditions that are being amalgamated together, mm -hmm. uh, thus confusing the heck out of me and everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. No, I mean, so the, one of the things that I uh, uh, get a little into in my my own uh, dissertation um, is is Thor's relationship to the ocean, and and one of the interesting things is that um, is that there seems to be sort of like an undercurrent of 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 Thor as like a a sailing Viking god. Like, like basically, like that Viking warrior god. Uh, so that's why I was asking about it. And, you know, um, maybe we we have a complex uh, that it is rather vague, but but nonetheless associated with like Thor as a warrior god who goes into battle and and also, you know, presents himself as a bear once in a while. Um, you know, yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's a possibility. It, <laughs> yeah. it absolutely could be. I mean, but the problem is that we are in the realm of speculation here. I mean, Thor is more often seen off on his own than actually in armies, fighting in battle lines. Odin mm. is much more depicted um, actually involving himself in the affairs of state that create battles. Where does Tyr fit in um, into all this? Oh, he's just over there in the corner getting his hand bit off. Okay. I mean, that's basically all he does in what survives of what we have. Yeah, he's yeah. meant to be like a god of battle. What's yeah. going on there? Yeah. Uh, so, I'm, I'm going to have to like ask one uh, one thing though. So, so, so when you say uh, when you make that distinction between Thor and uh, and Odin, um, what specific sources would you like point to that that actually underpin that? Because this is something that I see a lot of scholars repeating and also probably have myself on several occasions but when i start thinking about it i'm like yeah sure we have these stories in in uh in in uh, um where thor is like going somewhere he's not necessarily alone he's there's usually a companion um but on the other hand we also have him like fighting in the first line in in uh, the, the the war in Baldur's death in uh, in 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 Saxo, right? So so yeah. like is is that perhaps do we do we perhaps um, sometimes um, maybe just repeat what some of the old geezers have been saying in our field? 
It was all Thinner Johnson, yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we do. We frequently do. I mean, this is something I've encountered so often in actually researching Berserkir. Mm -hmm. uh, people repeat the same things. They repeat the same sources. Um, the picture you get of Berserkir is very different if you look at the chivalric sagas, uh, chivalric romances versus what you get if you only look at the sagas of the Icelanders and bits of the legendary sagas. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but people repeat what's said and they only look at the sagas of the Icelanders and maybe Rolf's saga because that's got uh, Bathar Bjarki in it and he's a bear child and all the bear stuff's going on with him. Um, so, and it's a problem. It's a problem because if we want to understand what's going on with Berserkir specifically, we need to understand what our source material is actually saying about it. Uh, and that means understanding what the medieval audience actually would have understood, would have thought when mm -hmm. they heard these stories. Mm -hmm. So... That means you've got to look at every single incidence of the word in Old Norse literature to understand it. And the same thing applies to the mythological stories that you reference, Matthias. They're basically, people do look at the same old material repeatedly, or they just cite people who've looked at those bits. Yeah. And you wind up with the same things being repeated. And when you start looking more closely, you go, oh, hang on a minute, there's a gap there, and that doesn't really tie together. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Very much more into the idea of actually trying to um, adopt a more holistic approach and actually look at everything. Yeah. Which okay. is exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, before we get into what you think, uh, I think the last thing I want to tie up is the idea of, of like shape-shifting when it comes to like sagas and people be, like humans becoming the animals, whether it's a bear or or a wolf. Particularly, Mateus, when we did the reading of um, the Volsunga sagas, the two the two guys who become wolves and go out like that. Does that have any tie to to the berserk or, or the wolf? Because it obviously seems, especially looking at like the modern understanding, it seems pretty pretty close. It's complicated. Oh, there we go. Sorry. I'm send him a t-shirt, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, basically, there's a yes and a no to that because you do get magical shape-shifting of people who are absolutely not Berserkir or Ulfhethnar. Then you get mm -hmm. people like Bathar Bjarki in Rolf's saga who Snorri says is a berserk, even though Buthvar in the saga itself isn't identified as a berserk and is actually set up in direct opposition to the berserk here in the hall. Um, <laughs> the what you what, what you find with Rolf Saga Kraki, Rolf Saga Kraka, I should actually get the genitive ending right, shouldn't I? Um, is the in the king's hall. There's the Vesakir on one side, and there's the Kapi, the champions, on the other. Uh, and they're set up in direct opposition 
But when you look at other sources, it says that a lot of the Kapi actually were Berserkir. Uh, so I'm very much thinking that this is a narrative device mm -hmm. and that characters like Bustyar are actually Berserkir and that he sends his spirit out to fight in the form of a bear in that final battle. Uh, so the, there's something going on there. And then there are characters who are Berserkir who are identified as, I think, the best way to English way to describe it is shape shifty. They're mm. not really quite of one shape. Before you pop to that, how much could could it just be like good storytelling? And the way that you know we have similes, metaphors, whichever one it is, where oh, yeah. you know, like it's it's just he went and he fought like a bear. Because just, you know, it's it's you're telling a story around the fire and it's and you just saying, yeah, his spirit came out and he was fighting like a bear. That's how good he was. And you're just emphasizing this this end battle has been something amazing. Oh. Whereas really it was just a, a, a man fighting, but you know, with high you're looking back on it after and making a nice story from it, then it's like, yeah, his spirit came out and it was amazing and he fought like a bear, he was unbelievable. Well, yeah, I mean, he was well earned, so why not describe him that way? Exactly. There, never let, the never let a little light stand in the way of a good story. That's what exactly. I always say. I mean, this is the thing with Old Norse literature is that we have to remember that it is literature as well, and mm -hmm. that it's too many people have taken too much too literally when actually reading it. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, yes. Um, clap, 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 clap. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my job here is done. I've made Matthias clap. Excellent. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the first time yeah. in 60 odd episodes he's clapped. But yeah, it is. I mean, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the stuff around Berserkir is almost certainly good storytelling. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the sagas are. I always think of them as historical fiction. I think that's kind of the best way to think about them, even though historical fiction wasn't actually a thing back in the medieval period when they were written down, mm -hmm. because it focuses on the fact that they are literary as well. There is, for example, in Gretis Saga, Jarl, Jarl Eirik is supposed to have outlawed Holmgang in 1015-ish in Norway, mm -hmm. uh, which led to the Berserkir, um, Ogmund, the, the, Ogmund the Evil and Thorir Ponch um, sailing down from Hologoland to find this guy who supported this move for outlawing, challenging people to duels for their wives and their uh, farms. And this leads to a whole narrative arc which ends with uh, Gretir killing uh, the Berserkir after mm. a comedy episode at the farm where he appears to be on their side and feeding them beer and giving them a good bath and everything. Mm. Um, and I actually maintain that then the Berserkir, the two named Berserkir, their names are joke names because Ugmund Ritli and Thorir Thumb are both alliterating names in Old Norse. Mm-hmm. And I just think this whole episode is one great big joke, and it's almost like a long shaggy dog story. <laughs> yeah, um, no, but... that's. I mean, I think that's really that's a really good point. Like to make it, this happens ever so often in the in the literature, and 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 
And the those who were writing the stories, they were well aware of this. They were doing it on purpose. We know this, of course. Um, and I think we can even assume that, you know, if similar types of stories were told back in like the Viking age, where we assume that people believed in some kind of like maybe like spiritual context or whatever we want to call it, religious context for this, there would still have been joking involved. There would still have been good stories involved, right? Mm -hmm. like, Oh, yeah, people joke about everything. This might sound super stupid, but I'm sure it's not going to be this, the dumbest thing I've ever said on the podcast. So here we go. I mean, <laughs> what are the chances that, that maybe just a story survives or something's found? And it's just like the Harry Potter of the, the Viking Age. But, <laughs> but it's looked back on now as we're kind of like, oh, yeah, that's how things were. Kind of in the way that it, it's a little bit harder now because we live in a time where everything's recorded, but let's say everything was wiped out apart from Harry Potter books. And then in a hundred years, people found it like, fuck me, these people are all wizards. <laughs> like, <laughs> but but surely, is it possible that that could happen with some of these stories? It's like we, we look at it and go, yeah, maybe that's real when it's complete fabrication. It's just a good story and, and that's it. Yeah. It wasn't that dumb. It no. wasn't that dumb. It absolutely well, there was not. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, a lot of the things that go on in these stories are things that they are Harry Potter-esque. Mm -hmm. um, oh, is it Itluga Saga Gridafostre, which has the uh, giant women with... Uh, clothes that hang down their front but leave their arses open <laughs> um and the sort of i've not seen that in harry potter well no but i mean <laughs> their sense of humor and their idea of what would be harry potterish was different as well all i can think now is that we should burn all the books just to troll future generations that we were wizards <laughs> i think it would be worth it <laughs> All except for Matthias's Norse mythology for kids. Oh, yeah, leave that one. <laughs> just so one, that Norse word stays out there. Just one copy of it. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, there are things in these sagas which we can almost certainly say they did not actually believe, but it was a good story, and that's what they wanted. Mm -hmm. um, people living inside mountains and... Yeah, uh, you know, these giant women who the guy's basically forced to have sex with and uh even though they're utterly disgusting because their clothes are all wrong and they drip snot out their noses and everything. Mm -hmm. Um I mean yeah. Yeah, I, I, and this, I, I think this is such a good point because it's like, even when, when we look at, or especially when we look at, at like the, the core texts on the mythology, right? Like stuff that uh, we, when we uh, as scholars work with it, we assume that this forms some kind of basis for religious beliefs, right? Um, I mean, it's, it's so ridiculous sometimes and there are very obvious jokes in there as well um and like they like Snurri Sturluson when he's like writing his stuff he's making fun of these gods that he's talking about too so so yeah no this is I I, I that was a, actually a very very good question Daniel yeah I've always imagined Snorri as the 
ever ever so overly serious documenter of what other people of other people's jokes without actually getting the jokes first. <laughs> you know? So actually, in his defense, I, I'm pretty sure that this his story about Thor fighting Gerroder has something to do with uh, the uh, the ancestor of one of his neighbors. Um, but that's just my own little uh, funky theory. There, there's oh, something okay. going on there. <laughs> <laughs> it is quite possible, but yeah. I mean, essentially, getting back to the topic, there is metaphor, there are similes, there are proverbs in these sagas. There is assumed knowledge that we do not have. We do mm -hmm. not have the cultural context for a lot of it. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at Berserkir, I mean, all you see is the episode where the guy turns up and gets killed. Yeah. What's going on outside that? You know? Well, I mean, yeah. It, it's very rare that we actually get further information. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Ail Saga is almost certainly the only one that says that when Lyotr the Pale was not out challenging farmers for their wives and women folks, he lived peacefully on his farm. And then, of course, he meets his end when he fights uh, Ail Skottergrimson. Mm -hmm. um, but that's because he didn't realize he wasn't the hero of the narrative. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we are, I think we're about an hour in, and so far I've learned the Berserkers did exist, but we have no fucking clue really what they were. Um, am I pretty accurate? Almost. I would say that we can create a model of what a medieval audience would have considered a Berserk to be. And we can mm -hmm. create a model of what a Viking Age Berserk might have been based on that. Okay, um, let's let's do that. The evidence is scant for the Viking Age, right? Uh, Berserk are in the medieval audience. They what are sitting in their farmhouses. They're hearing these stories. They've got mental pictures in their heads of what these Berserk are, whether they're not wearing armor, whether they're out, they're wearing bearskins or whatever. The, we don't know. We will never know that mm -hmm. unless I invent a time machine. Um, okay. So, but what we can know is how the word itself is used and the roles that they have in the literature. And we can also, because it is literature, we can look at the narrative structure to try to understand what's going on with their Berserkskonger, uh, their so-called Berserker Fury, which I am determined to get people calling, calling it the Berserker Strut, <laughs> as will become clear as I talk further. So... <laughs> Like Mateus, you like you're doing like that Conor McGregor ring walk almost the <laughs> spaghetti arms. Oh no, I, I was actually getting more close to like 1970s pimp, but uh, yeah, oh, that's sure. that's that's where my mind went originally was that kind of <laughs> 70s uh, strut with a little bit of the Bee Gees playing in the background, right? <laughs> and flares. Might not be that far from the truth, really. I mean, you look at the reconstructions of clothing of the time. You know, <laughs> All yeah. we need is the plateau shoes. <laughs> it maybe wasn't quite as beige, but you know. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I mean, when if you want to know what the Besafka is, you've got to start with the literature because that's where the word comes from. That is the only place we find the word. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that means so when we look at that, I mean, we know they fought Holmgang. We knew, know they fought Jules. Um, and for, for me, what's home gang? I've heard it, and I'm sure it's been said before, 
But it's an island death match. Island death match. <laughs> okay. Home is island, gang is just go. But basically, it's a ritual duel fought in a delineated area that you might think of as like a boxing ring uh, with rules around how you're supposed to do it according to the sagas, such as you get three shields and you've got to take it in turns striking blows and you're allowed to have a shield bearer. Mm. Uh, and then there's various other bits. It It's presented as something that had ritual significance. It wasn't just two guys squaring up after the pub to have a fight in the street. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that's what the home gang is. And there is a whole thread running through the uh, sagas of the Icelanders that has Besatkir challenging poor farmers to duels. And the usual formula in the saga is it will say something like, it was the law then that you could challenge somebody to a duel. And if you won, you got their farm and their wife and their daughter. Okay. Um which is kind of where the Gretis Saga episode comes in, where these Holmgangs are uh, outlawed in Norway. Mm. Uh, a lot of people say they outlawed Berserkir. No, they didn't. They only outlawed the Holmgang and the people that refused to give up the practice. Right. Uh, okay. Which were usually Berserkir. How, how much can we actually trust that that was a real thing? Well, I um, think it wasn't. I think it was a narrative thing. Yeah, uh, it's creating an idea of who and what Besakir were. Yeah, uh, they are intimately involved with Holmgang. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you look at the legendary sagas, they're frequently king's bodyguards. They're the leading warriors in the armies. Um, so that's another role that they have. And then you get Viking Besakir. Um, who basically are out for their summer halls collecting some souvenirs and rescuing books from burning monasteries and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, these are the kinds of key roles that they've got, but they're also not mutually exclusive. Uh, so in Rolf Saga Kraka, which I keep coming back to because it's just so chock full of Berserker goodness, mm-hmm. um, his Berserker are actually away plundering and pillaging. And the problems only happen when they come back at Christmas and they do their thing of going around the hall saying, Oi, you, do you think you're as good as me? And everybody's okay. supposed to say no. Uh, but of course, Buthvar says, well, I don't know who you think you are, but I'm better than you are. And breaks <laughs> the guy's back. Um, there you go. So it feels like, <laughs> this This might be a weird analogy, but they're almost like stormtroopers. In the sense that you, it seems like you just get different ones with like that do different things. Like you get some with like the black helmets that fly the, not the X fighters, the other one, and then the white ones and the green ones and the red ones, and they all have their own little role to do. They do in the narratives. It's entirely possible that a Berserk could have actually fulfilled all of those roles simultaneously, oh, okay, but at different times. Oh, so, so it's not like one one type for each but no. let's just roll with it for a second because of course that makes odin darth vader i mean come on that's awesome yeah <laughs> so that makes him the that's what i was going for who is possessing the clone tro- i mean the Berserkir troopers yeah yeah, yeah i'm happy with that just just <laughs> yeah Sorry, just i'm know. rewriting my book now <laughs> go for it <laughs> this, this, okay, was, so- this was recorded on star wars day as well if anybody wants yes. to know why 
the Star Wars references yeah. keep coming up. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, the 4th uh, of, of May. Um, That's it. Yeah. No, so uh, one question here. Um, we see all of these like references to like animals in these names, like Krolf, right? Um, we have uh, 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 Belva, Bjarki. Um, we have um, of other uh, such um, figures that seem to be associated with some of this stuff in different ways. Um, um, I mean, maybe we could even go with Beowulf, I don't know, um, and Href and, and so on, right? So, so what, what do you make of all of these like uh, names that basically refer to, to, you know, various kinds of, of furries, um, here? <laughs> um, basically nothing because okay. Ulf and Bjorn are two of the most common names in the Viking Age. Um, um, do we know this from the uh, runic material? It's in the runic material as well. I think. I think. Oh God, they're like second and third place. There is one name that beats them all into extinction, but I can't remember which one it is now. Uh, but it's in mm. Lena Petersen's Runenarms Lexicon, so mm-hmm. the dictionary of runic names. Um, but yeah. These names are so common, I don't see how we can ascribe any value to them at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Interesting. Uh, and when you actually start looking at... There, is, there has been a theory put out that Berserkir are named, given nicknames or names that are designed to make them appear particularly gross. But un- once you actually start putting all these into a spreadsheet and counting them up, there isn't any significance to these names. There might be within individual sagas, like I suggested in Gretis saga, where I think they're joke names. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's not there's not a pattern. There's mm-hmm. no pattern in the literature to, that actually connects Besetkia specifically to specific names. Mm-hmm. Uh, or specific types of names, mm-hmm. which is but really I'm... tedious and boring as a result. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really disappointed. <laughs> well, so was I when I did the bean counting. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to say one thing though that um, I, I personally I would I would disagree with the even even like if uh, Ulver and Björk are like the main names that Vikings call themselves or each other. Um, I would have to disagree with that. There's with the idea that there's no significance to it. like. Make, yeah, sure, they're popular, right? Um, but but I mean, this, we assume, I assume at least, that we're dealing with a society that uh, that ascribes significance of various kinds to 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 all kinds of acts and and ways of naming and uh, ways of talking to and, and like, it's very much more ritualized than now. Um, so. I um yeah I just I just wanted to to say that um not because uh, it 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 I want to push any berserker uh, theory uh, <laughs> <laughs> with them but I'm sure that there's there's got to be a significance to naming your your son Ulver for instance like wolf in 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 the viking age don't you think I think there almost certainly is but it doesn't necessarily tie to being a berserk Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which is really what I'm talking about. I mean, 
it might you get naming patterns where if the father's still alive, the kid gets the grandparent's name, mm. um, you know, and that rolls through several generations. Uh, you see it in Eil's saga with Eil and Thorolver being uh, repeating names in the same family. Yeah. Uh, so you get names that are important for families. I would be willing to bet that you get names where somebody's turned around and said, I want my son to be as strong as Thor and a bear, and suddenly they're Thorbjorn. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, absolutely do think that. I do wonder sometimes to what extent people would actually have recognised that these names had that value because they were used so much. Mm. Um, You think about uh, modern naming patterns and the types of names people have. yeah, yeah, this, this was where my, my argument was sort of like going along the line of like, maybe, maybe we can't use modern naming patterns as sort of like a model for understanding that because, yeah. um, we, we, you know, the way that we see the world as, as human beings today is, is, is presumably it's so very different from how they uh, saw it. It will be. Uh, mm. I'm just sort of, but I still do wonder if a name is, I mean, like name Geir, Spear. Mm. How many people actually think Spear when they hear that name when they're talking to their mate Gerd these days? Because the name is so common, so familiar that you don't necessarily think about what it means. Um, and there's, uh, that there's, won't there's, stop people in the Viking Age also picking names specifically because they have meaning. Yeah. Uh, how are we going to identify this pattern? Yeah, no, that, that, there's also something to be said for the fact that, you know, people were named Pot. And other such random things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. So it's like we have to ask ourselves, well, okay, so if they ascribe a bunch of meaning to 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 calling somebody spear, for instance, but not yeah. so much to calling somebody kettle. Like, yeah, we, hey, of course. Kettle, the- kettles are important. If you're from Yorkshire, yeah. then if you're British in general, kettle's fucking important. So, five ever son, he's been called kettle. But also, it brings new intro- new meaning to introducing people. Hey, pot, meet kettle. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Um, so, but yeah, I don't think we uh, within the Berserker area. I don't think that we can actually spot any particular patterns within <laughs> individual sagas. I think we can see that the author is getting at something. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. okay, that makes sense. To get so to get back to what you were saying about um the berserker before about how it sounds like they're just an almost an elite class of warriors for the king who get sent out on special missions, come back, they have they hold themselves in high esteem, they're a dickhead to everybody else because they think they're amazing until they get sent out on the next mission. That yeah. kind of sounds I mean, oh, that's how I took it. I think that that's actually not a bad description of Berserkir in these sagas of the Icelanders, to be honest. Mm. Um, I mean, in Old Norse literature, generally, you do, you get them in all those different roles. You get them being completely dickish towards other people. That seems to be one of their narrative roles. Mm-hmm. Um, not all of them. Some of them are just say, it says, Oh yeah, he was a Berserkir in his youth. Um, and some of them are described as both noble and a berserk, 
So you get characters who are given positive attributes. And then when you get into the chivalric sagas, chivalric romances, you start to get Christian Berserkir. Okay. So you've got Antonius in Balaam's Saga of Yosefats, which is a Christian retelling of the Buddha legend translated into Old Norse. Um, and he is specifically mentioned as fighting a home gang on behalf of his Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, Jesus and- Christ really <laughs> wanted, Jesus really wanted his wife and kids. So, so, so let's just recap this for, for our audience here. It is, is it Buddha who is a berserker? Uh, no, who, no, it's okay. the hero Antonius. Oh, it's Antonius. Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and, uh, but it's, but it's the legend of Buddha. It's the legend of Buddha told with a Christian slant. So it's yes. Christianized for the Western audience. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's, that just blows my mind that these stories are coming from that far away to be retold and mm-hmm. recast and everything. But it also actually points to what we said earlier about how these are narratives that are made up and created for the audience. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Antonius fights a duel against demons for Jesus Christ. Right. Uh, okay. Josephat is described as God's young berserk. In Carlemagne's saga, the saga of Charlemagne, mm-hmm. the uh, Bishop Turpin is told as he lies dying at Roncesvalles on the field there um, by the great hero Roland. You've been a great berserker against the heathen men. Yes. Uh, so it's, is it possible it's just like an elite warrior, like you would have like a marine? Yes. Yeah. Mm. That is exactly the kind of analogy I would be inclined to go for. Uh, these guys are the paras of their day, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I mean... And we see this very clearly with Yvain's saga, which is the Norse translation of Yvain, the Knight of the Lion, Chrétien de Troyes' Arthurian romance, mm-hmm. where Yvain's got this lion that follows him round, and two of the bad guys turn around and say, yeah, we'll fight you, but you're not allowed to have your lion fight as your berserk. And that's a translation of the old French champion, champion, Okay. Okay. So, yes. so basically, that's kind of when you start looking at all the literature, you start to realize that they're intimately connected with jewels. They're very closely connected with being with fighting as proxies for other people. So, being a champion for a king, mm-hmm. and they're often depicted as bodyguards. So, the okay. old lost literature actually very much goes to all the different meanings of the English word champion. Mm-hmm. So these Berserkir are often essentially in roles like Charlemagne's knights or King Arthur's knights. They're his closest warriors. They're the ones who'll stand in for him when he needs someone to fight on his behalf. And they're the ones who will fight and die beside him if they have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, it, the, that's the medieval it, depiction. Yeah. It would make sense for a king to have a close group of specialist warriors are the best warriors the because how many uh i guess like how many warriors existed at the time that were solely warriors that was their job it wasn't you know a case of being a farmer that was called up 
to battle. It was that your profession was to be a fighter. Like, did that really exist, or was it more of a case of you fought when you had to fight, or when when it called for it? Yes and no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think by the Viking Age, you're actually looking at kings with precursors of what the medieval retinue would have been. You're not looking at a tribal society. Uh, we've been moving away from that since the fall of Rome, at the very least. Um, so within the context of what Viking Age society was like, I think you could have had these men who they had their farms, but they were the social elite. They fitted this bodyguard champion role that the medieval audience sort of saw them in. Um, and yes, they could have spent a lot of time sitting around the hall because they had other people to actually manage the farm for them. They mm-hmm. were, they were the social elite. And I think in that, in respect of that, it's significant that the iconography of archaeological artifacts that features the horned helmeted uh, god figure and the wolfskin clad figures is substantially associated with the social elite. I would strongly argue that that from like the five hundreds, that's where we see, uh, you know, the yeah, uh, in southern Scandinavia at least, what appears to be sort of like a general uh, social and societal move towards um, the medieval retinue in different ways. It's slowly uh, feudal. Uh, processes are happening and 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 in a, a sort of like a feudal society is is being built um mm-hmm. we have we have those um place names especially in the danish and southern swedish area um that uh that distinctly uh it connects a, a a male personal name with with a land yeah. right um this is something uh, um that seems to be coming from um, the Thuringian area. Uh, we see we see the same same type of place names there um, in that time period. So so it it would make a lot of sense if uh, if we are like seeing this what in you know uh, later early medieval contexts and uh, presumably also Viking Age is called the Hirth is is basically emerging at at that time, right? And they would be those those basically like elite warriors, right, who who have land, probably because it was given to them by somebody who said, I have all of this land, you come fight for me, and then um, you can have that uh, plot over there or something like that. And then they also have enough um, money and, um, or I guess, goods at this time. We're uh, still dealing with a largely a barter economy, I guess, uh, to, to, to also have people working for them so that they can sit around in the hall and drink mead and uh, wait for Grendel to show up, right? Yeah, yeah. I it sounds very knight-like. Yeah. It's heading in that direction. Yeah. I mean, this is the transition that's been going on since the fall of Rome when everybody started saying, all right, we're going to present ourselves as Roman emperor-type things. Mm-hmm. But they're sort of adapting all the iconography of Rome into their bracteates that they're wearing, into the mm-hmm. and all the kinds, all those kinds of imagery that's being used to present this idea that they are the inheritors they are the ones who are the rightful lords 
so there, I mean, you are going to want to keep these people around you if they're your best warriors and if, if they're your champions. And then beyond that, within a Viking Age and uh, pre-Viking Age context, they will probably have ritual roles as well because Old Norse religion was intensely personal, uh, which gets us back to performing uh, their Berserkskanger. Uh, the Old Norse literature repeatedly doesn't present it as berserk madness. Mm. Um, it repeat when you actually read the narratives, there are gaps between Berserkskanger and any fighting. And, and they are not gaps that we'd expect to be there if it was literally going berserk, going completely battle mad. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a classic bit in Svafdala Saga where the Berserk Moldy comes in and storms into the hall and wades through the fire in the hall and starts biting on his shield. And then he mm-hmm. sits down and he greets the Jarl well. <laughs> and says... I've come here because I want to marry your daughter. Uh, one lacuna and a few pages later, he's dead. We're not quite sure how that happened because that bit's missing from the manuscript. Uh, you know. For, 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 for being such a dick. <laughs> they, yeah. Someone came to my hall and walked through the fire and bit his shield. Be like, but who's this guy? He's doing all the whole sort of immune to fire and iron stuff <laughs> and the howling and the shield biting. Yeah. But he sits down and he just greets the owl. Yeah, okay. And he's welcomed in the hall. And it's like, right, I've done my entrance. You didn't have a doorbell, so I'm going to have to do this instead. <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a proper bro. Just yeah. like that bro entrance. Bro entrance. I, I think it probably was. But you repeatedly get that. Uh, which makes Berserkskanger appear to be more of a performance, which is why I would like to see it described as the Berserker strut. Mm-hmm. As etymologically, it's Berserker, the word Berserker, and Ganger, meaning go, but mm. always in the sense of physical movement. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ruben, Ruben's in the chat, and he asked if you could tell, could you tell something about the link with other languages, like running a mock. Which I guess is similar to the Malay running amok that Dacent in the 19th century likened Berserkir to. Um, it's basically uh, Dacent who translated Bernd Njal's saga, um, looking at what's going on with the Berserk and going, oh, this sounds a bit like these Malays who ran amok. There isn't really a connection except by analogy with what Dacent understood was going on in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get this repeatedly. We also get it with the Celtic battle rage, uh, which is pronounced something like Riestroth. Uh, if there's anybody Irish what listening, I apologise for my pronunciation. <laughs> but that's basically Cucullan's warp spasm. Mm. Um, but... Even that, as a berserk fit, is being contested by people like Ralph O'Connor now. Mm-hmm. So the same debate that I've tried to push about Berserkskanger is um, being also debated in Old Irish literature. 
people are saying, does this word actually mean what we've always translated it as? Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. So let's get to what you, because I think we're almost at an hour and a half, what you think the berserker word definitively in your opinion. Right. Berserk, I think, is definitively champion within a specific context. Uh, in medieval literature, in the, in the sagas, it is, um, it's a person who is bodyguard, duelist, uh, general badass, and associated mm-hmm. with Berserkanger, which in the narratives does not come across as meaning actually going berserk, even though that's how it's always translated. Mm-hmm. Um, I do actually have a theory about what's going on with all these Holmgangs and uh, Besserskanger as well, but I can come back to that if you want. <laughs> but uh, in the Viking Age, I think we just have to extend that back um, because the berserk meaning comes out of 17th century and later interpretations. Uh, but in the Viking Age, you're again looking at Lords, bodyguards, uh, your kings, bodyguards, who were their champions. It may be that the kings and the lords themselves were also Berserkir. Um, mm-hmm. they may have been seen in that, that light too. I think they have, were thought to have a special connection with the god of the social elite, uh, who might be Woden or Odin or something analogous. Um, and that therefore, because of the nature of pre-Christian religion, they would have performed the rituals because they're the ones who have got the closer connection. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, okay, right. You guys over there, you're the ones who actually talk to Odin regularly or whatever it happens to be. You're the ones who lead this ritual. You will perform it for us. And Besarskanger is that ritual. I think, I do wonder, if you read Halvamal 156, it talks about Odin knowing the spell to take people safe into battle and bring them safely home again. And it says chanting under the shield, Mm -hmm. which makes me wonder if the biting the shield is actually this chanting. Okay. The shield either in front of the mouth, so it's metaphorical biting, or as happens in some of the old Irish, one of the old Irish laws I was told about, it could be you plant your teeth in the top of the shield, which if you filed them nicely would be a great way of showing them off. Mm-hmm. And then you sort of, the howling is the chanting behind it. I mean, Galder, so spell casting is always described as a really horrible noise in old Norse literature. So how much could that be linked to something like, I guess, like the hacker? There's, there's, it's like a pre-battle war cry almost, and something that was done before going into into fight because it does it does kind of pump you up. There's a reason, you know, when I played Ruby, there's a reason why everyone like slaps each other on the chest or shout, especially like before b- before a game in the changing rooms. It's very hyped, it's very loud, and there's a reason for that because it does pick the atmosphere up. It gets you ready. So I imagine that would be the same thing when it was going into into a battle. You, you want to make yourself seem scary. Because I know, you know, when I played, if, if there was someone, especially my across my opposite number, 
if he was a you know big fella and he looked mean, it does strike that little bit of, ooh, maybe, I, maybe I'm going to think twice about running straight at you. Well, yeah. I mean, I absolutely think that a hucker is a good modern analogy for it because a hucker is more than just trying to be scary. It has social and cultural significance as mm-hmm. well. And there are different types of hucker. I mean, there's the ones that the All Blacks have performed and then there are various social types. But oh, And and a, a different one for all the different sort of islands in that in that yeah. region. You know, get like Tongan, Samoan, Papua New Guinea and they all have their own variation of this like pre pre battle war cry. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't have to be a war cry in those cases. It can also be a greeting. It can be welcoming somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a mark of respect too. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that it has social and cultural significance, I think, is important in terms of it being an analogy for Basarskanga. I absolutely think the Basarskanga could have been similar. Uh, in terms of social significance, cultural significance. It could have been, it and probably was religious and magical in nature too, all of these things together. And it could have been ju- as well, specifically to scare the bejesus out of the other guys. Mm-hmm. You really yeah. want, you know, it, it, but it is performed anger. That's really where I'm go- going with this. It's, you know, it's apparent anger. It's not, it's not actual battle madness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's also a, a, a way to get the the adrenaline going, because if you're gonna even like say just just playing rugby, it's a scary thing running a ball into. Well, let's say you're gonna attack about four guys. Like they it hurts. It, they it they hit you hard. It hurts. So especially if you're going running across a battlefield with the potential of dying swinging a sword or an axe or whatever like you need that adrenaline you need that pump because otherwise no sane person is going to do that especially when you're going into battle against a bunch of big guys who've been socialized to do nasty amounts of violence to you from an early age and fed well so they're bigger than everybody else around them yeah i mean exactly. there are so many reasons why best is a social role and is likely to have been one that is one that was passed down the family your dad's a berserk, which means that he's got the wealth, which means you get fed well, you get brought up in that tradition, you are socialized to do nasty amounts of damage to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you... and that, I, I guess that would send send a message to everyone else if because it's all it, it does all come down to striking fear in people, and if the you can I guess especially then you can only see as far as maybe the front line or the first few people if those first few look scary as fuck. You don't know what's behind that. They might all be like that. So yeah. I guess it, it, that strikes a fear. And if the first ones cause massive amount of damage, it definitely makes you go, all right, wait a minute. Maybe I don't want to, maybe I don't want to do this. Well, that's it. I mean, I actually, ima- I have a frequent, when I thought about this, I frequently imagined that the battle lines would stop just outside of spear range and yell at each other a lot. If the you know if the other guys don't immediately run away, I I kind of imagine there's a lot of that and insults get th- 
thrown at each other. But if you've got the Berserker, if you've got the champions there leading you in, you're more likely to go in because they're more used to, they know that the sooner you get stuck in, the more aggressive you are, the better your chances are. I can just imagine it's like when you get those two two dogs either side of a fence that are barking and snarling at each other, but when you move the fence, they just kind of go, ah, yeah. I think that's your ordinary farmers most of the time, yeah. So, so my question though isn't so could we sort of like expect these people living somewhere in Sweden in the five six hundreds, right? Like so 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 could we are we basically in a situation where we could expect a, a person of status, presumably? Uh, so so within that like broad range from like somewhere you know lower middle class and up to. Uh, to the elites, like depending on where you are in the hierarchy and where you want to go in the hierarchy, would that person then show up somewhere and then do their little dance um, and maybe bite their shield and and that kind of stuff? Is that is that what we where we're getting at here? That this would be sort of like a, a thing. That's the direction I'm going in. Mm-hmm. Um, if it was a pre-battle thing, or maybe it was directly related to Holmgang itself, um, okay, I can't really say because the only thing we really have about Berserkir in battle is Haraldskvæði, mm-hmm. the uh, poem about the Battle of Hofsfjord, mm-hmm. which most people are fairly happy was probably actually composed around 900, even though it only survives in 13th-century texts in bits yeah uh, and all that does is it says that they uh shouted and waved weapons um and then when it's describing the it's actually i'm just going to call it up on my screen so i actually say the right things here um it actually says in it uh it's a conversation between a raven and a valkyrie about the battle that's just happened where harold has fed the ravens etc the usual tropes Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the verses says that he wants to ask about the equipment of the Berserkia, the drinkers of blood, which basically just means they're super fierce. This is back to our discussion about metaphor. Mm-hmm. And the response is, they are called Ulfhethnar. They're called wolfskins, those who carry bloody spear- shields into battle, mm-hmm. which may mean the shields are just red. Or it may mean they're covered in blood. Who knows? Uh, so, so, so uh, one thing about this, um, I mean, going back to, so we were shitting on Finno Jonsson earlier, and let's just do that again for a second. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, one thing I would like to sort of like put out there in general is that our, um, like our understanding of, of Kennings are largely defined by his scholarship and then, you know, added to by Sigurd or Nordahl as well. It's like these two, like, uh, scholars who, who have really, like, done their their, their uh, thing to sort of, like, put their mark on uh, understanding that literature, right? And one of the things that I want to just put out there in that context is that they have probably had the most uh, boring and and sort of uh, rationalistic interpretations, right, of the Kenningar, um, especially, and and so that means like you know you 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 look up um, a a Kenning somewhere in um, 
in uh, the uh, Norsk-Islandske skjælledækning or something like that. Uh, you, you you look at it there, you and and um, uh, what what you basically get is like, oh, so this funky kenning that makes use of all of these references, like in, in various words and in mythological contexts and all that stuff, just means giant. <sighs> Like, um, and I just, I just wanted to put it out there. Like, could we, could we go further in, in that dis, uh, uh, interpretation of, of that stanza, uh, those lines, those lines? How do you mean go further? I mean, the kenning itself is Bergia Chrysavar, which is drinkers of the corpse sea. I, it is a glorious kenning. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure where else we can take it but that it means that to actual drinking blood well i mean <laughs> there is an episode in uh oh i think it, is it in heimskvinglas somewhere where the guy drinks water with blood in after the battle because he's thirsty and gets told off for it ah. some kind of supernatural uh repercussions yeah i can't remember the source for that one so doesn't yeah. it make doesn't it make you sick drinking blood? If you isn't drink it too much? Isn't it like you can only really stomach like a couple of cup, not even cupfuls, like eight cupfuls or something, and then after that you 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 will you will start vomiting at some point if you if you drink too much blood. Yeah. So yeah. it's always this idea of yeah they they drink loads of blood. It's like no, they probably didn't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So as you I said before, we. Um, before we wrap up, the last thing I wanted to ask was about just to throw a spanner in the works. Um, boar warriors, are they a real thing? They exist. They don't seem to ever get mentioned much, but it's certainly something I've seen pop up here and there. Boar is a name. There is, I think it was actually mentioned in the chat, one of the helmet plates from Vendel of Alskara actually features a figure that appears to have the head of a boar. Mm-hmm. Um, they are not really a thing in Old Norse literature. Okay. Um, although, again, going back to the whole, everybody is named for animals, and that leads to some great jokes about how we dealt with Fritter the goat. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know. Uh, Tacitus does mention um, and uh, he actually think. I think it's the Eisti, uh, so possibly the Estonians <laughs> or some tribe that has a similar name um, somewhere in the Baltic area wear a boar and think that that will protect them. And this is also one of those mentions that have been interpreted as possibly tattoos. Um, I, I, I don't know if that uh, that has like any other relevance than, than Tastus simply just mentions that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I tend to discount Tacitus except sort of as a general indicator of where people have looked for sources because it's mm. just way too early and it's very much more describing tribal uh, German, Germanic tribes rather than what we were discussing before, the kind of proto-feudal society that was developing in Scandinavia. Mm. But I mean, you do get references to Lombardic Kainoscephali, dog-headed wet warriors, Mm. Um, you, there are literary references amongst the Latin historians of sort of the end of fall of Rome, end of the Roman Empire period and around then 
uh, Amianus Marcellinus and people like that who do reference animal-headed uh, warriors, although the specific example I'm thinking of of the dog-headed ones is uh, the army saying to the other army, yeah, we've got dog-headed dog soldiers in our camp there, and the other army goes, all right, lads, all right, we're backing off, we're going. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I'd, I'd get freaked out if somebody said that too, you know, regardless of the context. One thing I just wanted to ask, though, is that what about um, that... Um, uh byzantine uh source that uh, i'm blanking on on who uh, who the emperor is Constantine uh, is it him who's talking Ceconius about the gothic dance at christmas yes yes uh where they're meant to be wearing um oh, some kind of construct headdresses mm -hmm. and they shout a word that's been interpreted as being yule yule yes yeah. Um, yeah. Could could that be like a description of 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 that dance or a dance of, of that kind? Right? It might be. It yeah. might well be. I mean, this is the difficulty we have is that it's a Byzantine source, mm. and that's an awfully long way from Scandinavia. And even when we sort of we read about the Rus and how fierce they were, to mm. what extent were the Rus actually Slavic? Into you know what parts of their culture were Slavic versus what parts came from Scandinavia. Mm. It's a problem. It's a problem actually, sort of picking these things apart. Mm. Well, another thing is also that I guess the you know the, the split between like Slavic and Germanic is also rather artificial. Yeah. In many ways. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the problem. It's sort of we're looking at things from a long way away and they all look awfully homogenized because all we're seeing is like, you know, far away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything looks the same. Yeah. yeah. And if we were up close, there would be so many differences between different areas that would be mm -hmm. more immediately recognizable. Mm -hmm. I mean, Frederick Svantberg's done some sterling work on looking at burial practices in Southern Sweden with that and, basically identifying local subcultures. Oh, um, nice. You know, I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we I mean, go uh, from there? No, no, but that's <laughs> also the thing, right? Like, we're, we're literally trying to map, like, like several hundreds of years, if, if not a, a full millennium, um, and, and like, over such a vast geographical area with so many different... Presumably, so many different ethnicities involved too, or mm -hmm. local identities, if nothing else, right? So, yeah. no, that's a really good point. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, it's the time period. I mean, even mm -hmm. if we only look at the Viking Age, was a berserker in eight hundred the same as a berserker in nine hundred as one in a thousand? You know, I mean, things changed, and yeah, I, you see it with the adoption of the berserker epithet for uh, Christian berserker in the chivalric sagas. You mm -hmm. see it in the fact that in the 14th century there are two men from the Oslo area with the by name berserk, and one mm. of them is buried in St. Olvard's Cathedral. All right, yeah. there you go. There you go. And they're, <laughs> they're recorded in the charters. So, <laughs> what were these guys like? Were they <laughs> champions. Or were these ironic nicknames because they were so meek and mild? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Okay, so is there anything else we need to know before we wrap this up? This stands out. 
I'm going to throw one last speculative thing at you. Um, the idea that the Home Gang episodes are possibly rites of passage for young men who are about to become adults. Okay. Because they're often, you get a kind of, I hesitate to say initiation ritual kind of narrative going on because I don't think they were initiation rituals because mm-hmm. the men are bunt is just too Nazi and um, mm-hmm. all the rest. And I think secret societies like that are too tribal for this type of society that we're looking at. But the Home Gang episodes frequently start with a young man, uh, Egil Gisli Gretir, going somewhere and being treated poorly by everybody who's there. And then the Basatka comes along at Christmas time, because it's always at Christmas time, at Yule time. And he fights the duel with them. And he will frequently get given a sword. In some cases, he gets given a wife, gets to marry the daughter of the farm. And everybody treats him well after that. Mm-hmm. Is the best after in these cases his uncle or somebody else wearing a mask and being scary? And is this just a test to say, right, you're a man now, lad, because you've done your fight? Uh, much like uh, that's the most Yorkshire uh, thing I've heard on here. That <laughs> <laughs> no, that right there just brought me right, <laughs> from me right back, but. You get something similar in Throlf's saga where Hutter is taken outside and has to fight this constructed beast of mm-hmm. some description by Buthbar and then drink its blood. Mm. Oh, that's going back to the blood drinkers, actually. Exactly, right? Yeah. So- Good point, Matthias. Good point. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. But, but yeah, I mean, it has led me to wonder if there is a Bersefka identity that is basically a member of the family who tests a young man to see if he's actually fit to inherit. And there is a law of Magnus the Lawmender from the 13th century that says that if you are not fit to, oh God, fight a duel and something else, ride a horse, I think is one of the options. There's a couple of different texts. Then you're not able, you're not legally allowed to inherit. There you go. There you go. Just throw that one out there just to muddy the waters first. Well, you know, why not? Why I mean, not? look, this 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 almost gets us very close to Santa, too. I mean, I'm just saying that. Like, it's the best second Santa. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I'm bringing your manhood in me sack, lad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be careful with that one. <laughs> <laughs> right, let's uh let's wrap this one up roderick thank you thank you very much um you clearly know your stuff when it comes to this topic thank you yeah I thank you so much is, <laughs> i imagine this has kept you up at night many a night for too many years to be honest yeah <laughs> and the worst of it is i thought i knew what i was doing when i got in to actually start the phd on the topic <laughs> By the end, I completely changed my mind having looked at the evidence. Well, that that I, I feel like that's a good result, though. That means you've found some good evidence. Yeah. I Perfect. So. That that's usually how it goes. I feel like. I mean, um, when I when I started my research, I I was like, oh, I'm just going to tell people that there weren't nine worlds. That was that was really my my initial thesis, and then like volcanoes. After that, <laughs> it got all weird. 
So it kind of blew up then. It really did, didn't it? <laughs> so, Roderick, have you got anything you want to plug or shout out? You're working on a book, aren't you, at the minute? I'm desperately trying to finish what I've tentatively called the Big Book of Berserkers, but which will be published under a slightly more boring name. Um, so at some point, probably early next year, that should be published. Perfect. Nice. We'll make we'll make sure we have you back on when that when that's ready to come out. Yeah. I might have changed my mind again by then. Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll look forward to listening to it. I'm looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank <laughs> you. Absolutely, Matthias. What about you? Uh, you can always find me on Instagram. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> okay. If you want you can, me to block more things, you, you're going to have to tell me to. Like, no, it's it's like, I've, I've got a little list here now. It's uh, it's easy for me to do. So you can follow me on Instagram. Uh, it's Daniel underscore fire and one. Follow the podcast at Naughty Mythology Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, if you like the show, please leave us a review. Uh, five star rating, a positive review will always help people find the show. Helps bump us up the charts. Preferably on iTunes, it's the best place where people find us. Um, if you want to follow us a little bit further and support the show, Patreon's always brilliant. We have different tiers, five, 10, 20 pounds. You, you get different things at each tier. Every tier gets access to the Vikings Watch Along show that we record directly after the main show every week. So if you're, if you're a patron, you get access to watch the show live, but you also get to join us laughing at Vikings after and just it's a little bit more lighthearted. It's, it's a fun show. And then obviously you get our website, nonimythologypodcast.com, where you can pick up a t shirt. I think that's it. Yeah. Roderick, thank you. Thank you very much once again. Um, it was fun. I was as much fun as I hoped it would be. <laughs> thank you. The, the, there will be a part three. And I have no doubt when the book comes out, there will definitely be a part three to this. Oh, I hope that I'll better come up with something new then, definitely. <laughs> Already <laughs> yeah. looking forward to it. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Roderick. Take yeah. care.